0: Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus increment 140, and we will pray and get right to it. Father, we thank you today for another opportunity to gaze into the perfect law of liberty as in a glass, and the opportunity to be transformed into another increment of glory by your spirit, the spirit of grace, the spirit of the new covenant. And we pray now that you'll grant us the grace to see Jesus more clearly with the eyes of our heart and to come to the understanding, according to 1 John 5.20, that he brought with him in his incarnation and in the Christ event. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 6 is where we are, and I'm going to read the first two verses, our translation so far, and this is it. Therefore, leaving, very strong word here, it means to abandon, to forsake, to leave behind once and for all, the merely anticipative word about the Messiah. Let's be brought to completion. Not again laying down a foundation of repentance from dead works. Dead works includes idolatry in Psalm 115. Of faith in God, as Jesus said, you believe in God. That's already established from the Old Testament doctrines. Then he said, but believe in me. Now believe in me. You believe in God, believe in me. Teaching about ablutions or ritual washings or cleansings. That's also found in Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. And it has to do with the ritual cleansings under the Levitical rituals. And then he says the laying out of hands, which we dealt with in our previous increments. Actions of the priests in the offerings. And then this one. The resurrection of the dead and judgment of the In the age to come. In most translations. That's translated as eternal judgment. And we'll take a look at that. But. Questions are begged here. The question that's begged. Is what does it mean to leave. Or abandon. The resurrection of the dead. I mean how do we do that. And why do we do that. Isn't that. A very important. Doctrine. So. The first begged question, what does it mean to leave or abandon the resurrection of the dead in order to go on to completion? So this twofold question, the second part would be, isn't the resurrection of the dead a crucial New Testament doctrine? So again, why would we be told to abandon and leave it behind? The answer to this is yes, of course, the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead is a crucial New Testament doctrine. Yes, of course. But the subject of the resurrection of the dead, as dealt with in the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, receives a transformation and a completion in Jesus. In other words, in Jesus Christ, that whole concept of the resurrection of the dead is transformed in a tremendous way and transcended. And I want to outline that today or at least delineate just how that happens. So, yes, of course, the resurrection of the dead is an important doctrine, but the subject of the resurrection of the dead, as dealt with in the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, that is, the Old Testament, receives a transformation and a completion in Jesus whom we now see crowned with glory and honor. This may be shown in a conversation between Jesus and Martha of Bethany. Martha was and is Lazarus' sister, and Lazarus had died four days earlier before this conversation happened. In John eleven twenty three, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Now, Martha responded correctly, but she responded precisely with the perception of the resurrection from the dead that we're supposed to abandon, and that she needed to abandon, and in fact did that very day in that conversation. So again, when Jesus said, your brother will rise again, Martha responded correctly with the Old Testament understanding of the resurrection of the dead. She replied, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection in the last day. So her understanding and belief was in the bodily resurrection as spoken of, for example, in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, and is implied elsewhere, like Hosea 6 2 in which both resurrection and eternal judgment are conflated. They are combined in Daniel 12.2. So she had the understanding, which we'll call the Old Testament understanding of the resurrection from the dead, which was, in this case, eternal judgment was joined to that concept. They were conflated or combined. So she believed and she knew and was totally confident that Lazarus, would be part of the general resurrection of the dead as prophetically intimated in the prophets. But she would have to leave this anticipative understanding, this merely anticipative understanding, and be brought by Jesus into completion. If she were to see Jesus as the resurrection and the life presently, now, Jesus is the resurrection and he is also the life. When he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, he meant it. Jesus is the resurrection and he is also the life, capital L, that is the result listen carefully to this, the life that is the result of the eternal judgment of God. For the judgment of God, which we could say is even the eternal judgment, is the justification of all human beings. And so... Jesus is the resurrection and the life that is the result of the eternal judgment of God to give life to all in him. What's your judgment, God? Are you going to judge most of humanity to go to hell? No, my judgment is to justify all humanity in my son. This is unspeakable love. You find it in Romans 3.26, Romans 4.25, Romans 5.18, and then again in 1 Corinthians 15 22, as well as 2 Corinthians 5.14 and following, Jesus would cause Lazarus to rise from the dead in only a few minutes from that conversation with Martha. But Lazarus would not become the first fruits of the resurrection, because the first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15:20 20 and 23, straddling that famous 1 Corinthians 15:22 verse or two verses about Jesus as the first fruits of resurrection. How can it be called the first fruits of resurrection if Lazarus was raised from the dead first? Because Lazarus' resurrection isn't the ultimate resurrection from the dead. He came back to live his life as he did before and die again. Jesus' resurrection is entirely unique, but it's also inclusive, not only of all humankind, but of all creation in all of its times. Lazarus would not become the first fruits of the resurrection when he came out of that tomb, because only Jesus is that. By his resurrection, from the dead now get this because prepositions are extremely important think of this the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection from the dead Jesus was raised from the dead there is yet to be a resurrection of the dead now the very way that's said is that's the resurrection of all the dead the resurrection of Jesus is a resurrection that's already occurred of Him from the dead. Then there is the resurrection of the dead, and that's what Hebrews 6 is telling us to abandon. And I'll tell you why. First, we have to do some homework here or some hard work. So Lazarus would not become the first fruits of the resurrection because only Jesus is that by His resurrection from the dead. Or out from among the dead, Jesus is called the first fruits in first corinthians fifteen twenty and twenty three of the general harvest of the resurrection because he was raised incorruptible and immortal, and his resurrection was both transformative of his Humanity in the days of his flesh, and transconfigurative in that it was an entirely different structure and configuration. We could even say a different kind of molecular structure of immortality and incorruptibility. Lazarus didn't come forth out of that tomb like that. Lazarus came out of his tomb and returned to the life he had before. He was not the object of the transformative, transconfigurative bodily resurrection that Jesus would be the object and the subject of. In other words, when I say the object of, he was raised from the dead. When I say he's the subject of, he said, I have power to lay my life down. I have power to take it back again. He's the subject of his own resurrection, but he's also the object of his resurrection as the Father raised him and the Spirit raised him, both in, in Romans 8.11 and in Romans 6.4. So, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life this is something that's quoted offhandedly at funerals and at gravesides and it's hardly ever understood or have ever proper given its proper due i am the resurrection and the life he said because he is the resurrection and the life of all of humanity and all of creation in him all are resurrected and in him all are given life, eternal life. You cannot separate the eternal judgment of God from eternal life. That's his mandate, that's his judgment, John twelve fifty, for example. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ever hear that? It's in the same verse that says the wages of sin is death. That the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans six twenty three. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans six twenty three B, because he tasted death or experienced death, which is the wages of sin Romans six twenty three A compared with Hebrews two nine for everyone. In Christ, all will be made alive. I can't say that enough in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two, In Christ, all will be made alive, and all means all. His bodily resurrection from the dead is the reason for the bodily resurrection of all the dead and the glorious transconfiguration of all creation that is presently subject to corruption. His resurrection and his life, in other words, encompasses and includes all of mankind and all of creation that's presently groaning in anticipation of its emancipation into the glorious liberty of the children of God. If this message is released on the 4th of July, then there's your independence there's your autonomous freedom there's your glorious freedom romans 8:21 now the conception that the hearers of the hebrew's homily must abandon or leave behind is the perception of the resurrection of the dead as merely a return to life as before but somehow immortally somehow It's also another, it's an abandonment of another interpretation that the resurrection is merely a metaphor for Israel's prophetic restoration. And that's an interpretation that effectively squashes the hope of a bodily transformative resurrection. In other words, to some, the references to resurrection from the dead, such as we have In Ezekiel 37, the Valley of the Dry Bones, and in Daniel chapter 12, we have, in that interpretation, that's merely, resurrection is merely a metaphor for national restoration of Israel. And that's a conception that these readers and that we must abandon. The understanding of the New Testament links the bodily resurrection of all of humankind the resurrection of the dead, with the transformative and transconfigurative bodily resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God, from the dead. Now, let me say that again. This is what it means to abandon a previous conception and a previous perception. I'll say that again. The understanding of the New Testament links or unites the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God, from the dead, from the dead, with the resurrection of all the dead. His resurrection is inclusive of all of humanity. I want to emphasize it one more time. The understanding of the New Testament links the bodily resurrection of all of humankind with the transformative and transconfigurative bodily resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God, from the dead. His resurrection is inclusive of all of humanity. He was raised... For the life-giving justification of all of humankind in solidarity, as a human solidarity. Romans 3.26, 4.25, 5.18, etc. On and on it goes. And he was raised from the dead for the liberation of all of creation from its slavery to entropy into the glorious freedom enjoyed by the children of God in Romans 8:21. We have pictures of that like in Isaiah chapter 55 where trees are seen clapping their hands and mountains are singing and calves are dancing and all of creation is experiencing the glorious freedom that will be enjoyed by the children of God. Now, there's another question that is begged when we hear, we must leave behind or abandon eternal judgment. Now, what does it mean to leave or to abandon the idea of eternal judgment? Isn't that also a subject of the New Testament? And that is extremely vital. Well, the understanding of eternal or age-abiding judgment is also transformed In Jesus, whom we see crowned with glory and honor, because Jesus' death encompassed and included all of humankind. One died for all, all died. 2 Corinthians 5.14, If one died for all, and he did, then all died in him. So, as his death is inclusive of all humankind... And because Jesus' death encompassed and included all of humankind, so his resurrection embraces and includes all of humankind. He said it to his disciples in a way that made it very understandable. He says, because I live, you will live also, in John fourteen nineteen, Again, we have to relate to that phenomenal, outstanding verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, which says the same thing, only expands it universally. In Christ, all will be made alive. So Jesus really says this to all of humankind in all of its times. Because I live, you will live also. Consequently, the 1st and 21st century readers, hearers of the Hebrews homily must abandon the old idea. Listen carefully to this because this is pinpointing our times. We must abandon the old idea of a double outcome of the last judgment and instead Embrace the insight of the single outcome of life for all in Christ, whose death, and listen please very carefully, I urge you all to listen very carefully, whose death on the cross was and is the last judgment. We must abandon the idea of a double outcome of judgment in the so-called last judgment because the last judgment is the cross of Christ and the outcome of that judgment is the justification of all of humankind, not some. And it results in life for all of humankind and not some. Now, Much can be said. Now, when, we, when every eye sees Jesus, it will see him whom they have pierced or whom we have pierced. Meaning, we will be in the last judgment, which is simply a manifestation of what happened at the cross for us. So much can be said of the interpretation of John 12:32. If I am lifted up, I will draw all. It doesn't say all mankind. It doesn't say all people. It just simply says all. John 12.32, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all to myself. Now, I'm going to give my endorsement to this with care. Much can be said of the interpretation of John 12.32, that when Jesus spoke of drawing all to himself, he meant not only all people, and he did mean all people, but he also meant all judgment, that he would draw all judgment upon himself, meaning all condemnatory judgment. Now, in fact, the Mirror Bible that is translated by françois de tois and it's still a work in progress i believe unless it's been completed since i last looked he translates john 12:32 like this when i am lifted up from the earth i will draw all judgment to me now without denying that he also meant all people to myself François Dutois added this parenthetical note, note number two, and I'm going to quote it directly. He said, All things include all of mankind and their judgment. The subject of the sentence, as from the previous verse, is the judgment of the world. See, he gets the context there in 1231. Thus, he goes on to say, the primary thought here is that in his death, Jesus would draw all judgment upon himself. Now, to that I would add, yes, I agree. He drew all judgment upon himself, all of the condemnatory judgment on sinners on himself when he became sin. But he also meant and intended to say, I will draw all people to myself because he uses the same word that's used for a dragnet for fish, being dragged by the fisher of men. I will draw all. How can he draw all people to himself salvifically? He can do so because he drew all their judgment upon himself. Redemptively. That's a glorious and wonderful truth. You've got to abandon some old understandings if you're going to understand it, though. Because I know people resist this. They are like exactly like the, some of the members of the Hebrew audience. They become dull of hearing. They think they know it all. They think they got the Christian system locked or locked down, if we want to use that term. In Jesus, all were judged in his death And in him, all were justified in his resurrection. Consequently, that's why it says he was delivered over for our offenses in Romans 4.25 and raised for our justification. Whose offenses? The sins of the whole world. Whose justification? The whole world. Now, whatever your conceptions of the resurrection have been in the past, you may be called upon by the Holy Spirit to abandon them for this greater understanding, this greater insight. Now, when Jesus spoke in terms of an apparent double outcome, of judgment and that's the kind of thing people are gonna say well, Jesus spoke about a double outcome of judgment he did speak in terms of an apparent double outcome of judgment after resurrection in John 5 28 to 29 he said all will hear the voice of the Son of God and will be raised some who have done good to eternal life some who have done evil, those who have done evil, to judgment, eternal judgment. Now, what does that mean? It means that you tell me who's good in this world, when the Bible says there's none good. You tell me who's evil in this world, and I'll tell you, all are. And I will say to you that through all, in all of humanity, there is good and evil. And there are those who have done good. And those who have done evil. So the whole human race are people that have done good and evil. Jesus is good. And he has only done good. In his resurrection, therefore, he assures that there will be a single outcome of judgment. Those that have done good will be raised to life. Those that have done evil will be raised to what? The judgment of justification. And so you have life and justification as the single outcome of judgment for all human beings who are both good and evil and have done good and done evil. The line runs through us all whether you like it or not or believe it or not or think that you're holier than thou and have the right to blast the hell out of people in social media because you're so much holier and so much better than everybody else. Well, in Pittsburgh they'd call you a I'm not I I won't say it. Begins with a J and ends with two F's, but I won't say it. Now and I don't mean Jag Officer either. There's a shortened term that is what holier than thou people are. It's a Pittsburgh term. In Jesus all were judged in his death. And in him, all were justified in his resurrection. Consequently, there is not a double outcome of judgment. There is a single outcome of judgment for all the human race. Did you have another understanding of that? Then it's time to abandon it and be brought along to completion. Consequences for that. In other words, if the so-called church does not move on to these increasingly important, significant insights, then, well, let's just say the result of that will be historical disaster, unlike you've ever seen before. Now... So Jesus was speaking in John 5:28 and 29, especially 29, he was speaking of the line that runs through all of humanity for, the, for whom he died, that we've all done evil and we've all done good at one time or another. Consequently, those who will have done good will be resurrected to life and those who have done, will have done evil will be resurrected to a judgment of justification. In other words... All will be resurrected to life-giving justification. We are all. With the exception of the man Christ Jesus, we are all good and evil. Jesus prefaced his words in John 5:29 with the declaration that, quote, "All who are in graves will hear His voice." John five twenty eight. So what appears to be a prediction of a double outcome of judgment, eternal life for some, and an eternally damning condemnation for others, is in fact and in reality a single outcome of justification and life for all. Because Jesus' bodily transconfigurative resurrection out from the dead, in which his humanity in the days of his flesh was radically transformed, his transconfigurative resurrection out from the dead is the eschatological bodily transformative and transconfigurative resurrection of all. Of humankind, without exception. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the reality for which we abandon incomplete conceptions and merely partial perceptions. Let me say that again Jesus is the reality for which we abandon incomplete conceptions. And merely partial perceptions and that may mean leaving the kind of tradition human tradition that nullifies the gospel and the Word of God and that has rightly turned off a generation of people or two the reason why the PT tells his readers that they need to abandon the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, is simply so they can go beyond the partial understanding to the full apprehension which makes the resurrection and eternal judgment one thing, one event. For the bodily resurrection involves the age-abiding judgment of justification for all of humankind in Jesus who drew all condemnatory judgment to himself. This is going to be in print. If you don't get it, read it 11 or 12 times until you do get it. That's why they're in print. This is important stuff. Not because I'm teaching it, but because the Holy Spirit's revealing it for such a time as this. I'll say it again. For the bodily resurrection involves the age-abiding judgment of justification for all of humankind in Jesus, who drew all condemnatory judgment, condemnatory judgment to himself. And that's, you can merely get that by putting Romans 4.25 with John 12.31 and 32. So this will be all caps in print. A single outcome of judgment means the salvific solidarity of all of humankind in Christ Jesus. You think that's a message needed for today? When humanity is being fragmented, polarized, when there is a new wave of vicious, violent, murderous anti-Semitism running across this land? when there is a hatred for authority, when there is a despising of laws that establish a nation and a society, when people are fragmented and even atomized, when genders are now 135 instead of the Genesis 2, you think maybe we need the salvific solidarity of all of humankind in Christ Jesus to be proclaimed today? You think? I do. This is comparable to the solidarity of all humankind in Adam. It's comparable, or at least parallel to it, in one regard. Because... The solidarity of humankind in Adam was universal and diachronic throughout all of time. But it's this solidarity in Christ is also dissimilar to the universal solidarity of humanity in Adam because the solidarity in Adam was merely temporal, but the solidarity in Christ Jesus is permanent and age-abiding. The single outcome of judgment is tied in turn. This has given you a lot today, and I understand that. But the single outcome of judgment is tied to the election of Jesus Christ as us all and his rejection for us all. In his death, we see his rejection for us all. In his resurrection, we see his election as us all. Do we realize how much has been fulfilled in Jesus? Do we know him? If we do, then we know him as reality itself and as the glorious fulfillment of all that God has willed for mankind and for creation. This is Hebrews atlot O-T-L-O-T. This is Hebrews, Otlot, on the level of our time. For there is presently a desperate need for Christians, and in fact for all people, to go beyond the now archaic and obsolete understanding of the resurrection and of the last judgment, and to realize that a life-giving justification for all of humankind has been brought about in Jesus, whom we see crowned with glory and honor at the right hand of God. This, in turn, lights up the immensely important truth that all of humanity is in a salvific solidarity with Jesus, who is our peace and the peace between us. Ephesians 2.14, In him... God intends to sum up all people and all creation and in the process to reconcile all things on earth and in heaven in him. The more people who are convinced of this reality, capital R, by the enlightenment of the spirit of grace, the less momentum for the fragmenting and atomizing of people and the forcing of groups and individuals into opposite corners of a mixed martial arts cage where they can only come out fighting. Fragmentation leads to atomization, atom And that is the tragic historical disaster of the last verse of the book of Judges, which might as well be called the last verse of the last chapter of the book, what's the use? For it says, every person did what was right in their own eyes. That's atomization. It's the next step after what we're experiencing now in this country fragmentation, polarization then atomization, when everybody is isolated and alone and self-destructive in the process, depressed, lonely, ontologically insecure. A society can't live that way. This message prevents that disaster. The more people are convinced of this reality of a salvific solidarity in Christ, the less momentum for the fragmenting and the atomizing of people. So why Hebrews now? And God has a purpose both in our gathering and in our dispersion. I'm totally relaxed in our current diaspora. God has a purpose far greater than you've ever imagined in our dispersion. And there will be a great purpose in our regathering, which will be a kind of festive preview of the regathering of all things in Christ Jesus. God's purpose in this dispersion of us since March of 2020 has served his purpose in a far greater way than in the 38 years of our history previous to this, 40 years plus. Now, the one reason why Hebrews now is the doctrine of the salvific solidarity of all humankind, which needs to be inculcated everywhere. The New Testament distinguishes the resurrection of the dead from the resurrection from the dead of one Jesus of Nazareth in order to combine the resurrection of all of the dead with the resurrection from the dead of one Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again because it's a complex sentence, I guess. The New Testament distinguishes the resurrection of the dead from the resurrection from the dead of one Jesus of Nazareth in order to combine the resurrection of all humanity or the resurrection of the dead with the resurrection from the dead of the one Jesus Christ. It does so by revealing that Jesus' resurrection, like his death, is representative of all and therefore inclusive of all. This is what Paul is explicating or explaining in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's another line of approach to help you understand this and to help the insight gain momentum and become rooted in the texture of your thinking and heart. Paul is explicating this in 1 Corinthians 15. For example, in First 1 Corinthians 15.12, he asks this question. Now if Christ is preached as having been resurrected from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? What he's saying is if Christ is preached as being resurrected from the dead, how can you say there won't be a future resurrection of all the dead? Because if Christ has been raised from the dead, then all the dead will be raised in him. There is a linkage of these two, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the resurrection of all the dead in him. See, right there, the apostle shows that there has to be a resurrection of the dead because Christ has been raised from the dead. Do you see it? Maybe you will after the Lord spits in some mud and rubs it on your eyes. Let's drop another lens. In 1 Corinthians 15, 13, he makes it explicit. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been resurrected, meaning from the dead. You see what he's doing? He's linking up the general resurrection of all humanity with the unique resurrection of one man, Jesus Christ, which was a resurrection into a transformative and transconfigurative humanity, not just a recovery of life as it was before. Do you see that? Do you see more clearly now that the resurrection of the dead is inextricably linked to Jesus' resurrection from the dead? And in 1 Corinthians fifteen sixteen. If the dead are not resurrected, then Christ has not been resurrected. He's he's driving that nail all the way home now. Do you see how the resurrection from the dead of one Jesus Christ is inextricably united with the resurrection of the dead? And the apostle of Jesus Christ means by the dead, all of the dead. And even all of humankind over the course of all time. Because he explains that if there are those who are alive and remain on this planet when Jesus comes, they will also be translated and transformed into a transconfigurative humanity also without seeing death first. And again... He speaks of all humankind over the course of all time because, again, may I say it, in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, our oft-quoted verse, for just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive in Christ, with Christ's kind of life. That means all of humanity will be made alive with eternal life, with the life that Jesus has, And the life that he is. I am that life, he said. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We will all be made alive with the life that he is. He is our, sir, single inclusive representative in death. He is our, sir, single inclusive representative. In resurrection. Because his death was our death. His justification, Romans 117, 326, 425, 6, 7. His justification is our justification. His destiny in future is our destiny and future. Romans 8:29 to 30. In Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. All are made alive. And in Jesus Christ, who is eternal judgment, all are justified. This does not eliminate. Now, get this, because there is an urgent warning about this. This does not eliminate the day of evaluation. 1 Corinthians 3.13, 1 John 4.17. Because then... Each and every person's work is assessed and its quality revealed by the consuming fire that is God. That is Jesus Christ, whose eyes shine like lamps of fire. What is important for us with regard to this passage, Hebrews two, therefore... And the phrase the resurrection of the dead and judgment in the age to come is that the resurrection of the dead and judgment in the age to come have become conflated or united and fulfilled in Jesus, whom we see crowned with a crown of unfading glory, 1 Peter 5.4. His crown is also a crown of life, James 1.12, and of honor which is the crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4, 8. The resurrection of the dead and that which many would call eternal judgment have both been brought together in Jesus Christ. They are no longer anticipative doctrines, but they are realities that are realized even now. Colossians 3, 1 says it but are yet to be completely realized by all when Christ appears a second time with salvation, having appeared the first time to put away the world's sin and to conquer death in Hebrews 9.28. Only then when we receive the transformation of our bodies of humiliation will we have full apprehension of this truth. To augment our developing mature doctrine Let's take one more baby step before we close, and it's going to be a careful step, another step, and hopefully it's a steady one because we're on a rarely traveled ground here. The PT seems to join the idea of the resurrection of the dead with eternal judgment, as we've shown. The two doctrines are almost conflated in reality in the New Testament. The New Testament conflates or unites the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment in the following way, listen carefully. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead was for our justification, Romans 4:25. Therefore the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was the resurrection is connected with the resurrection of the dead. The eternal judgment therefore that's connected with the resurrection of the dead Is a judgment of justification, not condemnation, on all the dead, for he drew all condemnation to himself. This isn't just conjecture on my part, because there's a line of reasoning through Romans that leads to the justification in life for all. And I recommend, in fact, urge that sometime when you have time to read the ten doctrine sheets from Romans, Doctrines, Justification. It goes from reasoning, or from Romans one seventeen to 3.26 to 4.25 to 5.18 to 6.7 and then to Romans 8.30 and 34. The same reasoning is reflected in 1 Corinthians 15 as we just saw. The life With which we are all made alive in Christ is the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I will teach this again. I will teach this in a different format, in a different way, in a preaching way, perhaps down the road. God's will is that all human beings have eternal life, and this will is realized in Jesus' death, in which he experienced humankind's rejection, and in Jesus' resurrection in which he experienced their life-giving justification. In his death, he experienced humankind's rejection. In his resurrection, he experienced their life-giving justification. On top of all this, in a theological exegesis of Hebrews, God, the judge of all, as he's called in Hebrews 12.23, must be the God who justifies all. We will hopefully see this more clearly when we arrive in Hebrews 12 and our exegesis. Now, from a pastoral and personal note, this is my observation at the end of this message. The revelation of Jesus as reality renders all commentary insufficient. No matter what or how much we say or preach or teach or write or converse about him, we will still end up as unprofitable slaves. Luke 17.10 We've only done what we were told to do. And all that we've done and said is incapable of even beginning to sufficiently describe his glory. The beginning word about Christ is merely anticipative. But even seeing him through the lens of the New Testament and the Spirit of God as we inhabit these bodies of humiliation and these limited mentalities is to see only through a foggy lens. Now we see as in a brass mirror, obscurely, as the King James put it, we see in a glass darkly now. In Jesus has ended all the oblations, the laying out of hands, the repentance from dead works, the outmoded thoughts about a resurrection of the dead on the last day and a double outcome of judgment. In him all that's ended. It's gone. Leave it. Jesus is the resurrection of the dead, and Jesus is the resurrection from the dead. He is the eternal judgment of God, for in him all the human race has received the judgment of justification. Do you see how this applies to us and to all people on the level of our own time? Do you see how this is directed to us Christians? who have not been carried along to a complete understanding of Jesus Christ and of human solidarity in him, which is highlighted by his great archpriesthood, like Melchizedek. Do you see it? These are truths that are largely unrealized and unseen by the eyes of the hearts of people today, even those who are called Christians, and rightly so, those who have indeed believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and who are indeed justified and have that life even now. But this truth of the conflation of eternal judgment and the resurrection of the dead in Jesus. As accomplished and amalgamated in Jesus Christ. Is like a tiny mustard seed. The truth I've told you today. In our time. Is like a tiny mustard seed. The smallest seed in the world today. But it will grow up. That's what I'm confident of. It will grow up and become bigger than all the garden plants in the world. It will put out long and strong branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Mark 4:31-32. to 32. That is, so that all of humanity in all of its shades may find rest in Jesus' redemptive reality. Father, make this real to all of us. Make this real to a society that's presently being fragmented, polarized, shattered by hate and by ignorance, on the way to being atomized where everyone does what's right in their own eyes, which is the end of a culture, the end of a civilization, the end of a nation. May that metastatic cancer that has infected our nation first go into remission and then be cured and healed by the realization of the salvific solidarity of all humankind in Christ Jesus. I ask this in his name. Amen.